0: Each year, at this time of the year, I try to think of a passage that will exalt in a unique way the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ and the magnificence of his incarnation. And I can think of no greater passage for this year than Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So please turn with me in your Bible to the little letter titled, Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look this morning at verses 15 through 23. As we come to these verses of the letter called Colossians, we come to the most important section of the letter. The truths found in this passage are the heart and soul of the book of Colossians. In fact, these truths are the heart and soul of the entire Christian faith. Verses 15 through 19 deal with the person of Christ, while verses 20 through 23 deal with the work of Christ. And of course, those two elements are the foundation of Christianity, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Who he is, what he has done. Who he is, what he has accomplished. And Paul describes it for us in a powerful way here in verses 15 through 23. By way of background, it's important, very important, to understand why Paul wrote these words in these verses. Let me mention the background. A cult, a first century cult, was attempting to deceive the Colossian believers in regard to the deity and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. As you probe and study this cult, you find that this sect or cult had two elements to it. There was a Greek element, and there was a Jewish element. The Greek element consisted primarily of philosophy. The Jewish element consisted of legalism and religion. The Greek element attacked the deity of Christ. The Jewish element attacked the sufficiency of Christ. The interesting thing about this cult was, like most cults, even still today, it did not deny Jesus but it did dethrone him. It gave Jesus a place, but not the supreme place. It gave Jesus a place, but not the right place. So this section, verses 15 through 23, is combative. Here Paul confronts the false teaching of a first century cult. He confronts it head on. This passage is directed against the inadequate view of the person and work of Christ that was being propagated by that first century cult. As a side note, it's always been ironic to me, and you may or may not be aware of this, but it's always been ironic to me that the Jehovah's Witness cult uses this very passage in an attempt to disprove the deity of Jesus Christ, and yet Paul penned these words for just the opposite reason. Here in this passage, Paul is upholding and proving the absolute deity, sovereignty, and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now, one thing we need to understand before actually digging into the text is the difference between the English language, our language, and the Greek language in which this was written. Whenever we want to emphasize or intensify something when writing in English... There are several options at our disposal. For example, we can do it by underlining. You've done that, I'm sure, in a note or a letter. You want to really emphasize something, maybe you You're sending a card to a loved one and you say, we really miss you, and you underline that. It emphasizes it. So that's one option. We can underline. Or maybe you can put a word or a phrase in all capital letters. Or you can put an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Or you can put a phrase in italics to make it stand out and to call unique attention to it. That's the way we do that in our English language. In the Greek language, in which the New Testament was originally written, To emphasize or intensify something, the writer basically had three options. One, he could invert or rearrange the word order to emphasize a thought. Two, he could repeat a word, as we hear Jesus often doing when he would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. Or thirdly, he could put a preposition on a word specifically on a verb, to intensify the meaning. Now the reason why I mention those things is because this passage before us right now, this passage we're going to look at is literally filled with those writing tools in the Greek language. To really appreciate the emphasis and intensity of these words, you almost need to put on your Greek glasses and realize that you, you should be underlining phrases, placing exclamation points at the end of sentences, repeating words, capitalizing them. This passage, beloved, is literally dripping with intensity, earnestness, and conviction. It's a very, very high-intensity passage. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul referred to Jesus as... God's dear son, and the king of the kingdom. Then Paul takes off from there and further explains who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. As I mentioned, the passage divides up very neatly with verses 15 through 19 describing the person of Christ, and verses 20 through 23 describing the work of Christ. So first, let's look at the person of Christ as the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, presents him in verses 15 through 19. And as we jump into verse 15, we won't get very far before we need to stop, because the very first phrase of verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Of all the statements in the Bible about the deity of Jesus Christ, none is more significant than that one right there. He is the image of the invisible God. The first claim that Paul makes for Jesus Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. The antecedent is dear son, or the son of his love, found at the end of verse 13. And Paul says, God's son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The word image is the Greek word eikon, from which we get our English word icon, which, as you know, means a picture or a representation, a lookalike. This Greek word was used to refer in the first century to a stamp or an engraving tool that made an exact reproduct- uh, an exact reproduction of the image. So Paul is saying here, Jesus Christ is the exact likeness of God. He is the only perfect representation of God, and He perfectly depicts God. 1 Timothy 1.17 says God is invisible. 1 Timothy 6.16 says God can't be seen. John 4.24 says God is a spirit. But Jesus Christ was God made visible. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the express image or the exact image Reproduction of God, a representation of God's person. Jesus is the exact reproduction of God. Now, Paul, of course, was not the only writer of the New Testament to say this. This truth is found throughout the pages of the New Testament. John one one says, "In the beginning was the Word; the Word was with God, and the Word was God." Jesus is referred to as the Word, and He is equated with God. He is stated to be God. The Word was God. And a few verses later in John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John reminds us, Jesus displayed glory. What glory? The glory of the Father, because he's the exact picture of the Father. And John 1.18 says no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son or the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. He has shown Him. He has expounded Him. He has exegeted Him. By the way, in some of our English translations, several of them, John uses the phrase only begotten twice in a couple verses. John 1.14 says, John 1.18. Now, not all of our English translations render it that way, but several of them do. The NASB does, the King James, the New King James, the only begotten Son. That is a confusing phrase to many people. And because it is, the cults will jump on that phrase to say... See, Jesus is not God. He's the only begotten. He was begotten of God. They will say He's only the Son of God. He's not eternal. He was born to be God's Son. But, beloved, the phrase only begotten doesn't mean that at all. In fact, it means just the opposite. Only begotten means Jesus has a unique position and relationship with God the Father. Our problem when we hear that phrase, only begotten or son of God is a cultural barrier. When we hear those phrases, it may imply to us inferiority. But the people of the first century didn't understand it that way at all. And their way of thinking only begotten or the, the term son of God meant complete equality with God. Let me remind you of this in John 5. Go back to John chapter 5. Uh, and because this is so important and so confusing, I want us to Look again at John 5 to see how this all fits together. The cults often will try to tell us that Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know how many conversations you have had with people who are involved in cults. I've had many through the years. And, and one of the most common assertions that has been stated is, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And what the reason they say that is because they will say, you can't show me one statement where Jesus said, I am God. That's right. Never said it that way, but he said it dozens of other ways. So they will try to capitalize on that and confuse people. They'll say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Let me tell you something. The people of the first century, the Jewish audience to which Jesus spoke, would disagree wholeheartedly because many times they clearly understood Jesus claiming to be God. And John 5 is a case, case in point. Here Jesus claims to be God, but what I want you to notice is the way he claimed to be God was by implying he was the Son of God or the only begotten of the Father and that God was his Father in a unique way. So in John 5, verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And we hear that statement and it it sounds, sounds pretty bland. You know, what's the big deal about that? Look at the next verse. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father. And don't miss this last phrase. Making himself equal with God. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. So the phrase son of God or only begotten does not mean inferiority. It means complete equality. Jesus Christ is God. He's the exact image of God. Look at what he said in chapter 14. Just turn a few pages to the right, still in John's Gospel. And look at chapter 14, verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Lord, just show us the Father, and that will satisfy us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? God displayed his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. On your way back to our text in Colossians, stop off at 2 Corinthians 4. So keep turning to the right past Acts, Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a great verse on on this particular topic. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Notice this powerful statement by Paul here in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now how do you get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? How do you see it or how do you behold it? Next phrase, In the face of Jesus Christ. That's how you behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 2, 6 of the Lord Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't consider it something to be grasped to be equal with God. So as I say, this idea, this truth is everywhere everywhere in the New Testament, and it is stated powerfully by Paul in Colossians 1, where he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now back to our text there in Colossians chapter 1. That's the first thing Paul says in verse 15, but he doesn't stop. Notice the next phrase. He says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The second assertion that Paul makes here is that Jesus is Lord over creation. Now please, please hear me when I say this. This, again, is so crucial and yet so confusing. The, the word firstborn, the title firstborn, is a reference to position, not time. I want to emphasize that. Paul does not say Jesus was the first. Created. He says Jesus is the firstborn. That's a completely different term in Greek. The term firstborn or prodikos refers to position, rank, right of authority, and primacy. It does not, I emphasize, it does not refer to chronology. Both the Jew and the Gentile understood this term and this concept. The Colossians understood perfectly what Paul was saying here. Jesus Christ is the superior one. He's the privileged one, the honored one, the prestigious one. Jesus Christ is before all creation in time, and he is over it in rank. He is the one who is in existence before creation. Jesus was not the first created being as the Jehovah's Witness cult teaches. Jesus was never created. He himself said in John 8, 58, Before Abraham was, I am. That's very significant. He did not say, Before Abraham was, I was. He said, Before Abraham was, I am. That is, I have always been and I will always be. That's what Jesus was saying, and his audience knew it, because in the very next verse, they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus is not the first creation. Cults will tell you that. He's not the first creation. He's not the apex of creation. He's not the greatest thing God ever created. He is the creator. And so to make it clear... Paul says in the very next verse, in case we've gotten confused, for, let me explain this, by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And this isn't new, by the way. John 1.3 says the same thing, all things were made by Him. Jesus Christ is the creator God. And Paul tells us here in verse 16 that not only includes the material world, such as the stars, the trees, the mountains, the sun, the moon, the lakes, all that you see when you go outside, according to verse 16, it also includes the immaterial world. Verse 16 says things visible and invisible. And the invisible things Paul has reference to are spirit beings. Because he clarifies by saying whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or whatever terms your English translation uses. By studying these terms in the New Testament, it is obvious, it is clear that these are the names of different ranks or classes of angels and demons. So Paul here in verse 16 is saying Jesus not only created the material world, He also created the spirit world, the entire world of angels, unseen beings. This was a direct blow to the cult that was hassling the Colossian church because this cult was teaching that angels were co-mediators between God and men. God is way up there. We're way down here. And Jesus is in this line or this string of mediators, but he's just one in the string of mediators because there are all these spirit beings to to bring us to God. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Paul says this. He says, Let no one cheat you of your reward by taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. See, that's what this cult was pushing. The worship of angels as mediators, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So when Paul in chapter 1 says that Jesus created the angelic world, he strikes a lethal blow to this cult which tried to say that the angels were equal with Jesus, the spirit beings, they were all mediators. Paul says, no, no, he's their creator. He created them. Contrary to the Jehovah's Witness teaching that Jesus is an angel, contrary to that false doctrine, verse 16 of chapter 1 says Jesus created angels. And contrary to the Mormons teaching that Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers, verse 16 affirms that Jesus created satan who is now a fallen angel of course jesus didn't create him in a fallen state he fell he rebelled afterwards but jesus created him that's what paul is saying in chapter one all things were created by him and for him jesus christ is the goal of all creation he is the end for which all things exist all creation will bring glory to him and catch this even the spirit world Not just the material world. So verse 17 says, And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. Now the word before here in this verse has reference to time. Now we're talking about time. Not firstborn. That term does not refer to time. Now Paul is talking about time. Jesus is before all things. Jesus Christ is the eternal one. He has no beginning. Paul says, as the eternal one, as the creator, he is the principle of cohesion. In him all things consist. He makes this universe a cosmos instead of chaos. One writer illustrated it this way, quote, If the earth's rotation slowed down, we would alternately freeze and burn. So the earth has to rotate at the same constant speed. If the temperature of the sun varied from its temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, we would either freeze or burn. Our earth is tilted at a 23-degree angle. This enables us to have four seasons. If it were not at that exact angulation, vapors from the oceans would move north and south and cover the continents with ice. If the moon didn't remain at its exact distance, the ocean tide would drown the land twice a day. Who holds all of this together? The Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord, end quote. The philosophers and the scientists of our world may seek for a principle of coherence, but Paul says here it is Jesus Christ. His power holds creation together. He not only created everything, he holds it together. So who is Jesus Christ? contrary to the inadequate views of the cult in the first century or the cults of the 21st century who is jesus christ he is the image of the invisible god he is the lord over creation and then thirdly paul says he is the head of the church notice verse 18 he says and and let me add this one he is the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. This is the third monumental claim that Paul makes for Jesus Christ in this text. He says he is the head of the church. What is the emphasis of this picture? The concept of head emphasizes control, rule, supremacy, And by the way, verse 18 is very emphatic in the original. You could translate it, He Himself is the head of the body, Jesus and no other. Jesus alone. No man is the head of the church. No man is the head of any individual church. No man is the head of the universal church. It is blasphemous to assert that kind of thing. Jesus is the head of the church. It's His church he calls the shots in his church and he does so by his written word and that is why scripture says it is the job of elders and pastors and shepherds and leaders and spiritual leaders of any kind to see to it that his word is the authority and not the opinions or traditions of people i'll never forget a conversation with a man on one occasion who tried to convince me that tradition ought to be the guiding authority of the church That is blatantly wrong. Jesus is the head of the church. And Paul says here the resurrection of Jesus uniquely places him as the head. And that's what the phrase firstborn from the dead means. It doesn't mean, we we already hit this, it doesn't mean, it's not talking about time. It doesn't mean Jesus was the first person ever resurrected because the fact is he wasn't the first person ever resurrected. There are resurrections in the Old Testament. Jesus raised people from the dead. He wasn't the first, but he's the primary one, the highest one, the top one. His resurrection was permanent. So the concept of head emphasizes control, sovereignty, but it also emphasizes sharing the same life with the body. I mean, think about that picture. Jesus is the head of the church, and we are his body. You could almost say that we are body too, That is, when Jesus came to the earth the first time in the incarnation, he took on a body, right? He became a man. And then he ascended back to to heaven from earth in that body. Now there's a sense in which he's taken another body. The body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. And thus Jesus and his church are viewed as a living unit. That is why when Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus before Saul became the Apostle Paul, you remember Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what's the next word? Me. He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church, my people? Why are you persecuting me? The church shares the very life of Jesus, and the church must function on resurrection life to survive it's sad to think how often we operate on a lower level. Now, what is the purpose in all of this? Well, the end of verse 18 says it. Notice the end of verse 18, it says, So that, here's the purpose clause, so that in all things he may have the preeminence. And again, it's emphatic in the original language, that he himself alone might be preeminent. So Jesus is the head. That is controller. He is the beginning. That is the source of life. He is the firstborn. That is the supreme one. Therefore, he is preeminent. He is unique. He deserves unique glory recognition. And listen, beloved, that's exactly what the Father wants. That's why the next verse says, For it pleased the Father. This was the Father's pleasure. It it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That statement claims full deity for Jesus Christ. There's nothing lacking. And here again, Paul isn't just saying these things to say them, he is directly attacking the false teaching of the cult in Colossae that said God could never enter a body. That was another one of the unique teachings. This cult taught that all matter is evil. Anything that's material, like this wood, is evil. Anything that has material substance, it's evil. So therefore, if that's the case, they said, God could not take on humanity. God couldn't become a man. Then he he would have material substance and he would be contaminated. He'd be evil. And that's why they said there needed to be all these angels between God and men because God would contaminate himself if he came in contact with us, human beings, as matter. So he had to sort of, you know, do this through this long series of angels as mediators. By the way, that is very, this teaching, that teaching is very similar to the false teaching of the Christian science cult. If you've ever studied or had any interactions... It's very similar. The idea that anything that's material is evil, so the goal in life is to dematerialize yourself somehow. But Paul says here in verse 19, it pleased the Father that in Him, in Him all fullness should dwell. And chapter 2 verse 9 says almost the same thing. It says this, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, and here's a key word, bodily, in a Body. That is so important, in bodily form. That is a direct attack against this cult, which, ge- which gave Jesus a place, yes, but not the supreme place. This cult gave Jesus a place, but not the right place, like almost all the cults. They will acknowledge Jesus, they will say they believe in Jesus, but their definition of Jesus isn't Scripture's definition. So this is a blow to all the cults that attribute anything less than complete deity and sufficiency to Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus Christ? You wouldn't have known it if you had seen a little baby in a manger, helpless. But here's who he is. He is the image of God. He is the Lord over creation. And he is the head of the church. Why is this so important? Why does Paul make such a big deal out of this? Why does he write with so much earnestness and conviction and intensity with exclamation points and underlying words? Why? What's the big deal? Here's the answer. Because if Jesus isn't God, he can't bring us to God. If Jesus isn't God, his death was meaningless and he can't reconcile us to God. After all, the fact of the matter is a lot of people died on the cross. I don't mean to in any way take away from what Jesus did, but the fact is, sometimes the Romans would go on a killing spree and crucify 500 people a day. So Jesus wasn't the only man ever to die on a cross. In fact, two others died within the very day he died. What makes his death unique? What makes it efficacious? How can that event bring us to God? Well, it can't. If Jesus isn't God, his death was meaningless. He can't reconcile us to God. If Jesus isn't God, then the unification church, which is another cult, is right when they say Jesus failed in his mission. He had good intentions, but he failed. Contrary to that, Paul says here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is first in rank in the universe the point of reference for history, the agent, the goal, the forerunner, the sustainer, the governor in the sphere of creation, the head of the church, the beginning, the source, the chief one, the preeminent one. He is God. And his death on the cross wasn't a failure. It was a victory. That gives him the power to do what verse 20 says. Chapter 1, verse 20 says, And by him... To reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. As you can tell, as we move into verse 20, the topic changes. The subject changes. The subject of verses 20 through 23 is reconciliation. But the word reconciled or reconciled here in verses 20 and 21 is not the normal Greek word for reconciled. It is intensified. So that it means thoroughly reconciled, completely reconciled, totally reconciled, fully reconciled. This clears up the second element of false teaching the cult in Colossae was trying to propagate. You remember I said verses 15 through 19 established the deity of Jesus. Those verses are about his person. Now verses 20 through 23 establish the sufficiency of Jesus. These verses are about his work. Notice the little phrase in verse 20, all things. Verse 20 says, by him to reconcile all things. Don't let that phrase confuse you. Paul didn't say all men. In other words, he's not teaching universalism where everyone ends up going to heaven. The book of Revelation and the teaching of Jesus make it clear that tragically many will be cast into the lake of fire. So what Paul is referring to here in verse 20 when he says all things is all of creation. Have you ever stopped to consider that the cross affects all of creation? We very seldom think about that. When we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we think about our sin and what it did for us. We don't think about what it did in relation to creation. Romans 8 indicates that when sin entered the world, it even affected the created world. The curse was imposed on the creation. But someday, this world of nature will once again be released from the curse and and, and will, will be in harmony. The world will be like it was before the fall. And then Paul applies this specifically in verse 21. He says, And you, and you who were once alienated... And enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. This is so great. It's just fabulous to see how Paul takes great theological truths, verse 20, reconciliation, and then he applies them personally to people. He basically says here in verse 21 You, Colossians, are illustrations of the power of Jesus to reconcile. All they had to do was look at their own lives to see the turnaround, the change. They were once alienated and enemies, but God reconciled them. Jesus reconciled them to God by his death. Beloved, this is true for us, those of us who know and love Christ. Formerly offenders, we have been brought into a right relationship with God through the merit of Christ. We were enemies of God. Scripture is clear about that. Prior to salvation, we were enemies of God, but Jesus brought us into God's family. And because we were enemies to God, we were hostile toward him. Notice Paul's word in here in verse 21. Hostility toward God in the mind reveals itself by wicked works. He says, enemies in your mind by wicked works. That's a fascinating connection that Paul makes there. Hostility toward God in the mind reveals itself by wicked works. This isn't the only place where Paul describes unbelievers in this way. Back up to Ephesians 4. Just a a couple letters prior to this. Ephesians 4. Notice the similar description. Ephesians 4.17 says this. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now watch this description that Paul gives of unbelievers. Of us before we came to Christ. He says, this is the way Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. Their thinking is, is corrupt, it's, it's, it's wrong, it's, it's futile, it's, it's alienated. Just like Paul said in Colossians, so he says, no longer walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Again, Paul makes the connection of this alienation in the mind, revealing itself by wicked works. That's the condition of unregenerate men and women. That was the condition of the Colossians. That was our condition. But the end of Colossians one twenty one says, Yet now... He has thoroughly reconciled. Even though this was our condition, we have been thoroughly, fully, totally reconciled. Nothing is left that can be added to our reconciliation. We don't need Jesus plus religion. We don't need Jesus plus good, our own good works. We don't need Jesus plus philosophy. Jesus is sufficient to get the job done. Now back to our text there in Colossians 1. How did Jesus reconcile us? Paul tells us in Colossians that he did it. How did he do it? Notice verse 22. He says, In the body of his flesh through death. That's a rather redundant statement, isn't it? He could have just said, In his body, or in his flesh, or through death. Because obviously if you say through death, it's the death of your body, the death of your flesh. But he uses a triple emphasis. In the body of his flesh through death. Paul is redundant here because he wants to emphasize that Jesus' death was literal and physical. It wasn't just a spiritual, mystical death, which this cult was trying to say and many cults since have tried to say. Jesus died physically, literally. He rose physically, literally. Never forget hearing on one occasion on Easter Sunday... Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who then was the head of the Church Universal and Triumphant, preaching Easter sermons, saying that we know, just like the Gnostics, that Jesus' death was not literal and physical. It was a spiritual resurrection. That lie has been taught since the first century. And Paul combats it here by saying, Jesus' death was in his body, his flesh. He died, literal, physical, and his resurrection was literal, physical. And the purpose is stated at the end of verse 22. He says, So as to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's what Jesus' death accomplished. And beloved, that is our positional standing before God. If we are in Christ, we are holy, blameless, irreproachable. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine God looking at us and saying, totally blameless? Not one reproach. Not one stain. So we can say with Paul in Romans 8, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. God has declared the verdict. Who's going to come along and change it? No one. There is no supreme court over him. He is the supreme court. And so Paul closes out this text in verse 23 by saying, If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which i paul became a minister now some christians read this verse and panic sets in they 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 read it as if this is a threat in other words if you continue not moved away that is oh man if you slip up a little bit that's it you're done that's the way some read it this is not a threat This is not even a condition on salvation. These words just indicate proof. This could be translated, since you continue in the faith. Continuance is the test of reality. Paul is basically saying, listen, I know you're real. This is not just some emotional decision you made, which sadly happens with people. They make some emotional decision at at some event, and then they go on with life, and there's never really any walk with Christ. Paul says, no, that's not you. I know you're real. Yes, the Bible teaches eternal security, but it also teaches that true Christians will continue in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Obviously, not without sin or 1 John 1-9 would be unnecessary. But continuance is the test of reality. So Paul says, listen, I'm confident of you. You're continuing in the faith. You are holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. Beloved, Jesus Christ is. Contrary to what the first century cult said, contrary to what our 21st century cults say, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That is what we celebrate at this time of the year every year. The Lord Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, and he is sufficient to save completely. But please hear me when I say this. There's nothing automatic about it. It's not automatic. What I mean is, just because Jesus Christ came to this earth as a man, died on the cross, physical death, literal death, rose again, there's nothing automatic. It doesn't mean that you are automatically fine, you're automatically okay. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior personally, then you are not reconciled to God. You're still in the condition that Paul describes. You're alienated. You're still an enemy. But Jesus will reconcile you to God if you will receive him by faith. But don't you dare assume it's automatic. Because it's not automatic. Let's bow together in closing. As you look at your life, are you 100% confident you have been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ? Are you absolutely certain that you have been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus is sufficient to save completely, fully, totally, but it's not automatic. It's not universal. The fact that he died doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. It's not true. So if you don't know Christ, if you've never surrendered to him, if you've never received him, then you need, to, you need to humble yourself before him and let go of whatever is holding you back and respond by receiving Jesus Christ by faith. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we implore you, be reconciled to God. I beg you, I urge you, be reconciled to God. Father, thank you for this matchless presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this true and accurate presentation of him here in Colossians 1, contrary to so many inadequate views that are espoused and propagated in our day and age by 21st century cults and and the ones that have been propagated down through the centuries by all the cults and false teachers who have ascribed to Jesus something less than full deity and full sufficiency. May we hear with clarity the message of these verses and may the the truth of these verses rivet deep in our hearts and souls and minds to be convinced and to be assured that Jesus is God in human flesh and therefore his death was meaningful. It was efficacious it is potent, powerful, and we can be reconciled to you, Father. And I thank you, and I know everyone who is present here who is reconciled offers their thanks to that, that we, we were blessed to be reconciled to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we would pray that for anyone hearing these words now who is not reconciled, who is still alienated, do whatever it takes to draw that person to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.